Brittany read. I'm sorry what didn't get up on the board, but uh, Paul said, I am speaking of first things. He's talking about the gospel, and he defines it, how that Christ died for our sins. And the phrase I want to underline is, he died for our sins according to the scriptures. Death by crucifixion, as practiced in the ancient world, was a particularly cruel form of execution. Most often, death came very slowly. Most often, the victim was even denied burial. Naked and affixed to a stake or a cross or even a tree, the victim who was being crucified was subjected to savage ridicule by the passers-by, as it was a quintessentially public affair. The death by crucifixion of Jesus under Pontius Pilate is among the most historically certain and theologically pregnant events in the short life of Jesus. This death, Christ's death, this crucifixion of Jesus of Nazareth, is very well attested in both Christian and non-Christian sources. It's reported, of course, in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, actually in, in remarkably full passion accounts in all four of them, and then referred to as an actual historical event in all the rest of the, of the New Testament, particularly in the writings of Paul. An example of, of other sources, and there were many, but an example of one was the Latin historian Tacitus. And he wrote in his little book called The Annals, this is what he said, Christus had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. Modern historians, whether they're Christian or non-Christian, also take that exact, exact view. An example of the latter is a man by the name of Michael Coogan, who is PhD from Harvard, co-editor of a book that I have called The Oxford History of the Biblical World. And he, this is what he writes in that book. Jesus was executed by crucifixion by, as a Roman criminal on the order of Pontius Pilate, the governor from AD 26 to 36, during the reign of Tiberius. Some of his followers proclaimed that after three days he was raised from the dead. That's a secular historian's assessment. Now, like the rest of the Gospels' accounts of the life of Christ, the crucifixion of Jesus is not recounted there merely to chronicle what happened, but rather the event of his crucifixion was of such a scandalous nature, the death of the Messiah of God, that it cried out for interpretation. So the people of God always look to Scripture. For them, at least, the Old Testament. And this is what they would find partially if they just went to the Old Testament concerning that crucifixion. Jesus' garments are divided, Psalm 22. He is crucified with two criminals, Isaiah 53. He is mocked, 
Psalm 22. He is taunted, Psalm 42. He is offered wine, Psalm 69. He cries out from the cross, Psalm 21 and 31. He is acclaimed as God's son or the righteous one, Isaiah 53, and he is vindicated after this cruel treatment. So it's no wonder that Paul, who is steeped in the Old Testament, says Christ died according to the Scriptures. I'd like to form what I'm saying today to you in three questions, simple questions. What? So what? And now what? You got that? Okay. Well, the what. The what <laughs> we've been looking at and thinking about. And it, it's exceedingly important that we, that we get this. But, I, and I've lived long enough to hear voices like this. Okay. Well, that was almost 2,000 years ago. What in the world does that have to do with me? What does it have to do with me? I, I may even be convinced historically that, that it happened, but what does it have to do with me 2,000 years later? That's a legitimate question. I'm glad you ask. So here's the why. Here's the so what. Why it matters, not only to the person who might ask that question, but to every single one of us in this building today. And actually to every man everywhere on this planet. The death of Christ is at the heart, it's not the totality, but it's at the heart of what was called gospel. Gospel. The Greek word is euangelion. And it was a particularly a particular used by, the, by Romans when they would announce some really good news. The emperor's coming to your town or some, a, a victory. They called it an announcement of good news. Gospel, good news. That's often taken for granted in our day, but it wasn't taken for granted in the ancient world because nobody, Jews or Gentiles, would have considered death by crucifixion good in any sense whatsoever. If you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified, even though you were guilty of the death penalty, unless it was for treason, high treason, and that was extremely rare. If you were a Jew, you knew completely that only a person under the curse of God would be crucified. For the Old Testament says, cursed is he who hangs on a tree. So this was not considered good in any sense whatsoever. Yet Paul, Paul, who was the quintessential Jew, calls it gospel. The gospel I preach, the good news that I proclaim to you. Listen to Paul, writing to the church in Corinth. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul declares that 
Christ gave himself for me. And in the passage, he's referring to Christ's death for his sins. He died for us, he writes to the Thessalonians. He died for all. He died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, he tells the Romans. So, if you've ever sinned, or if you've ever felt like you have sinned, and the wisest man, at least purported to be, Solomon, said, there is no one who does not sin. And the Bible says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So, if you have ever sinned, this is really extraordinarily good news. Christ died for you. Think with me a second. You're in a jail cell. And you're there because you've committed murder or treason. You've already been tried by a jury of your peers, and all the evidence was there, and you are undoubtedly guilty, and the death sentence has been passed over you. And you're in this cell waiting for that to take place. And here comes an official to your cell. And you think he's coming to take you out of it, to take you to your place of execution, but he unlocks it and he says, okay, you're free. You're, you're, you can go. Well, I'm absolutely incredulous. What do you mean? Well, somebody paid your price. Somebody took your place. And you can go free. You... <laughs> heard very good news. Now, do you think you'd be excited about that good news? I would think so. I would think so. But the gospel is even more astounding than that because it's not just any good man who would take your place. You, your place was taken by God's Messiah. God's anointed one. That's what the word Messiah means. The translation that is Christ, Christos, Mashiach, the Messiah, the anointed one. An anointing is very special in the Old Testament. There are only three classes of people who were ever anointed in the sense that, I, that this, uh, and, and it means you're anointed, you're empowered for your special task. You've been chosen for a special task, and now you're anointed to enable you to perform that task. And those three were prophet, priest, and king. Men who spoke for God. The prophet who spoke in the name of the Lord. That would be anointed of God in order to do this. They spoke to men for God. They spoke the words of God to men. The other office, the next office, was the priest. And the priest was anointed. He had all kinds of anointing, blood and oil anointing to intercede and to mediate between God and man. He was set aside to offer sacrifices for men so they could come into fellowship with God. And then the king was also anointed. The king was anointed because he was to stand in the place of God as a shepherd, as one who would wield equity and justice and mercy and compassion and yet fight when need came. Now, these three offices were separate in the Old Testament. No one in the Old Testament was prophet, priest, and king. 
But there was another one that came to arise in prophetic writings called the Messiah. And it went all the way back to Moses when he said, God is going to give you someone like me. He's going to raise up someone like me. And, and so this, and, all, and then all the way through the rest of you had this, this undercurrent, someone is coming. A special anointed one, a special Messiah. And if he's a single person, he's going to have to embody all of those other tasks of prophet, priest, and king. He's going to have to be the prophet. He's going to have to speak the word. Well, Jesus is that Messiah. He is the word of God in flesh. He spoke the word of God. Jesus was a priest. Not after the order of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek. That is, an eternal priesthood. He is the one who will stand between God and men. He is the one who will offer sacrifices for men. And then he's the great king. David in the Old Testament was the king, the ideal king, but Jesus is called great David's greater son. And so out of the seed of David comes the great king, Jesus, born of the house and lineage of David. And as a king, he's a shepherd king, filled with compassion, filled with... And so all of these things, all of these offices of anointing, they, they cohere and they conceal, uh, congeal in Jesus himself. He is the great Messiah, but he was a suffering servant. 600 years before he ever came, Isaiah saw him clearly and wrote, He took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He was oppressed and afflicted. He was cut off from the land of the living. Yet he will see the light of life and be satisfied. For he will justify the ungodly and bear their iniquities. Paul writes, for our sake, for our sake, because we needed him so desperately, he, the Father, made him the Son to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we in him might be made and might become the righteousness of God. Paul said, one died for all. So, the message of this good news, the gospel, which Paul calls the gospel of salvation, the power of God unto salvation, is powerful. It is not a simple little thing that you can just take or leave. It is the message you must hear and respond to. It is the power of God. And it's really clear in Scripture. You want good news to be clear, don't you? You want to be absolutely sure that what's being said to you is the truth and it's clear. Well, it is in Scripture. The Son of God, the Messiah, the Beloved of God, God in Christ, stood in our place. He bore our penalty. God became one with us in the person of Jesus Christ, one with us in sorrow, one with us in suffering, one with us, yes, in death. We are all, all men everywhere, in desperate need of hearing that good news. 
And here it is. He was condemned that we might hear from God, the great judge, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He was the cursed man hanged on a tree in order that we might hear forgiven, reconciled to God. Our relationship to God was broken because of sin. And he brings us to God by the blood of his cross. He literally tastes death for every man. His becoming, and he became the atoning sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. And that's the, so what? That's why it's important. Now what about the now what? What do you do? When you hear something like that, what do you do when it's backed up by thousands of years of people who have believed it and taught it? What do you do by a word of God that cannot be broken? Scripture that is infallible. What do you do with that message? Well, if you have, and I'm going to use a phrase my wife doesn't like me to use. Close your ears, Kathy. If you have half a brain, you believe it. You don't have to be, as we say, a nuclear physicist to be. No, you, this is good news, and you can believe it. Matter of fact, you must. And so we believe this wonderful report. It is through faith. This is called faith. Believe and faith. Believe is a verb. Faith is a noun. Same word. Same word. It is through faith in the Son of God who bore our sins that we are forgiven, that we are justified, that we are reconciled. It is through faith that we receive the gift of life, the gift of the Holy Spirit himself who comes to live in us. We have faith, Paul said, in his blood, which is another way of saying we have faith in his death. We're justified by faith. Somebody says, well, can you give me a real quick definition of faith? Well, take the word faith, F-A-I-T-H, an acronym like this, forsaking all I trust him. Can you turn away from every other hope and trust in Him? That's what we're called to do. Faith acknowledges our true condition. By looking to Jesus crucified, by looking to Him who was lifted up, like Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, we see, first of all, the true nature of my sin. My sin is not just some little simple thing. Okay, I made a mistake. That's not it. It has broken God, it is, it, is a, it is an outrage against the moral universe that God has made. It is against His nature and against everything for which we are created. Sin is heinous to God. It ought to be to us. But we see more than our sin there. We see what the true nature of love is. This is love. This is love. If you don't see that, you've missed the whole thing, just about. God so loved that he gave his only begotten son. And then what happens is, is so amazing. I begin to have new loves. My loves begin to change. I begin, I, and it doesn't happen just boom. It happens over time, yes, but it begins to happen. And Paul says, the love of God begins to compel me. 
to urge me along a different path, along a different kind of life. And he says, from now on, I can and I must and I will live for him who died for me and was raised again. If Christ died for our sins, and he did, the only proper response is one of faith and love, to begin to die to those things for which Christ died. I begin to hate them, and I begin to turn from them. It's called repentance. I begin to live a new kind of life. I become a new creation. I have been moved from the domain, the rule of Satan, into the domain, the rule of the Son of God, and I start living like it. And I begin by saying in that new realm of the kingdom of God, Jesus Christ is Lord. And I speak it with my mouth. Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I begin to declare my allegiance to Christ. I've had people say to me, well, Brother Jack, uh, saving faith seems so simple. Just faith? You say, well, it is simple in one sense, but it's so powerful. Why? Because faith affixes itself to Jesus, who happens to be full of God, who happens to be God the Son, who happens to be able to save us to the uttermost. That's why faith, it's not the quality of my faith so much, or the, con or the, the quantity of it, it's the object of my faith, Jesus. And I fix my eyes on him, and it's powerful, powerful. He begins to redeem us from a life of vanity, a life of misplaced love, a life that's really purposeless. And we can begin that now. Now. I began by saying that Paul was saying, this is a gospel according to the scriptures, and, and it's everywhere in the scripture, but I want to start, I want to just zero in, in closing, on the book of Leviticus. How many of you have read Leviticus lately? It's not the, uh, I'm so afraid of that. <laughs> yeah, the book of Leviticus. We say, why are you going there? Well, this is the place where the, the sacrifices are detailed. We're told what they are. And these were animal sacrifices given so that people, the old people, the, the people of God could come into relationship with God, having sinned. And they are illustrative of this one sacrifice. And there are only four that are listed in the book of Leviticus. The first is in Leviticus chapter 1. It's called the burnt offering. Sometimes it's called the whole burnt offering. And it was unique. It was unique among all the four. In that, this sacrifice, the entire animal is burned and becomes smoke to God. No part of it is left. It is all destroyed on the altar by fire. And, of course, this is a number of things. It, it, it's, it shows the complete consecration that Jesus himself had. And he gave himself without measure for us, completely. It also shows because when the, when the worshiper would come, he would lay his hands on the head of the animal and become identified with it. And it's saying, I am consecrated to God. I belong to God. I have, I'm an offering to God. And it's a whole offering. It's also called, that whole burnt offering, the atonement, the at one -ment. 
and it also pays a ransom. The second one is in Leviticus 3. It's called the peace offering. And this is the only one where the person who comes with the sacrifice, the worshiper, is allowed to eat part of the sacrifice. The part of the sacrifice is offered to God. A part of it is eaten with the priest and with the worshipers. And so you, you take, and you didn't eat meat all the time, and, and so this was a real, this was a feast, the peace offering. And you sit down with the priest, and you talk together, and you, you, you talk about the things of God, and you enjoy a meal together because there's peace. Well, he's our peace. He makes us be able to, and, and you're not at, you, there's no more war there. The third offering is called the sin offering. That's in Leviticus chapter 4. And this was, is also very fascinating. It's the only one of the offerings where a portion of the blood of the animal that's being slain is taken and sprinkled or smeared onto the, the temple, the tent of meeting, sometimes on the altar itself. And the reason is this. Sin, our sin, pollutes things even outside of us. Our world is polluted for the most part because of our sin. Uh, and so we sin brings pollution, and therefore it takes a cleansing. And almost all things, the writer of Hebrews says, are cleansed by blood. That's what happens. There's a cleansing that takes place. Well, we are told that the blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing us from all sin. That's the only way to get a good conscience before God, is to have your conscience sprinkled by the blood of Christ. And you can do this all the time. And fourthly, Leviticus chapter 5 and 6 is called the guilt offering. The guilt offering. And the word for guilt here is the word that Isaiah uses in Isaiah 53, where he talks about what Christ does for us. He bears our guilt and takes it away. The guilt offering goes like this. There are some sins that cause us to be in debt to God. We owe him something because of what we've done. And the blood of Jesus Christ pays that debt. Pays that debt. <laughs> and guilt is removed. That's why we can come boldly to a throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so Jesus fulfilled. And so no wonder Paul says, this is good news. This gospel is according to the scriptures. According to the scriptures. The sins of the whole world were laid on him. And he bore them completely. His death was a scandal then. Like a death. Messiah dies? It was, a, it was a scandal. Paul uses that term. A scandal. Still is today in many circles. A, you, you, you can't wrap your head around it. What do you mean God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself? How can that possibly be? This man who is covered with spittle and blood and, and, and beaten. and, and how, can, how can God be in that person. Well, he is, because God was in Christ. It is God who is suffering for us. It is God who was born in human flesh. It is God who is our Savior in Christ. It is Jesus who became the great I 
am. We're going to come to the table of the Lord in just a little bit. And coming to the table of the Lord is a wonderful illustration of what the Scripture teaches concerning the death of Christ. A part of what we do is we remember his death. I want us to remember it well today. I want us, to, and it, this table is also called Eucharist, which means thanksgiving. <laughs> oh my goodness. Can you say thank you, Lord, for your unspeakable gift? Can you say thank you, Father, for forgiving my sin, for loving me, for blotting out my transgressions?